Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Weather forecasting has made leaps and bounds in recent decades, and it's hard to remember a time when we couldn't get the latest forecast update with just the swipe of our finger. But wouldn't it be great if we could get an idea of what to expect months in advance? Well, you're in luck because today we have Dr. Ashton Robinson Cook, who has been a pioneer in understanding and improving seasonal forecasts, especially those for tornadoes. We'll find out how these forecasts are made and how events like La Nina and El Nino can affect them. Dr. I'm going to call you Ashton, but let me give him his props as Dr. Ashton Robinson Cook. But this is a young man that I've known for some time, so I'm going to call him Ashton. Uh, but uh, Dr. Robinson Cook, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you, Dr. Shepard. Yes. You know, it's, it, you know, I, I've got to, you know, we know, it's always interesting when I know someone personally and when we do these Weather Geeks podcasts, but I still got to ask you the question I ask everybody that comes on Weather Geeks. How'd you get into weather? Well, um, actually, my story starts when I was very young, before I even got into uh, elementary school. So when I was uh, three years old, my mom and I lived in a mobile home in Southwest Little Rock that got hit by a tornado. Really? Yeah, that stuck with me. Um, and I actually remember details about the day. Like, I remember um, earlier that day, uh, my mom, uh, my grandma actually was, was babysitting me. Um, and I remember walking around the neighborhood, and I remember kind of the, like the feel of the air, kind of how warm it was, but it was really cloudy. There was like a, a deck that I kind of recognize now as Ample. Um, and then uh, I remember there being like a box in the lower left hand of the screen of the TV that I was watching that, that resembled the state of Arkansas, and that was actually like a trailer watch. So clearly there was ex you know, a weather expected that afternoon. Um, and then I remember driving home or riding home with my mom, and then um, we get home and we're in the mobile home and we're just sitting, you know, in my mom's, uh, on my, on my mom's bed, bedroom and suddenly the TV and the stand that it was on falls toward us. The tornado picked us up and it kind of set us down off the foundation. Of course, the mobile home was actually on the news. It made the news. Wow. Ashton, I we, never knew this about you. This is amazing. Oh yeah. So, so yeah, you, it, we often have these personal experiences with people saying, oh, it was some event, but you literally were, you were in a tornado that picked up the foundation of your home. Yes. And, wow. and uh, again, we, we freaked out. Like that memory stayed with me for years and years. And so when I was young, um, when we first got cable, I was glued to the weather channel. <laughs> and I, I'd watch the weather channel all the time. And I, you know, I remember watching Jim Cantore back then and just learning like a sponge, just taking in everything I could possibly learn about weather. And, and, and I've got to stay with this because this is just such a compelling story. Um, as, as a professional in our field right now, clearly 
um, we have some idea of the vulnerabilities of mobile homes, and particularly here in the South, where both of us were born and raised. Um, have you have you thought about, or did that shape perhaps your interest in tornado research? Going that we're going to talk all about in this podcast, um, or, or did something else sort of shape your sort of research direction that you went in as, as a graduate student and now a scientist? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was a big part of why I had a fascination with weather to begin with was because of that that impact and that lasting memory. So, um, yeah, I was I, like I said, I was always afraid of storms, but I would always kind of track them. I had like this weird fascination about them. And and uh, when high school came around, there were another couple of big events that happened in Little Rock, uh, one in 97 that narrowly missed my home. Um, looking back at the radar analysis of that, that was a high-end tornado that that could have wiped us out. We were very fortunate, but but um, I remember those events and that and that kind of spurred my fascination in the weather. And so I, and that was one of the big reasons I picked Jackson State to go into undergrad. Yeah, and you went to, you went to Jackson State University. Uh, shout out to Jackson State University. They just celebrated the 45th anniversary, I believe, of that meteorology program at an HBCU. Uh, have a lot of good friends and a lot of great students that come out of that program. So you went to Jackson State. Uh, then after Jackson State, I believe you went on and got your uh, doctorate at uh, uh, University of Oklahoma, affectionately called OU by many people. And you were the first African-American male to earn a PhD from the OU School of Meteorology and the first overall to earn a master's of science from that program as well. And I'm going to talk all about that a little bit later because that's a pioneering accomplishment, which I'm very proud of on your behalf and, uh, and, and other, you'll, you'll actually inspire others. But after, after your, well, talk about your dissertation work at, at, at OU because I want to move to your current role at the Storm Prediction Center, but set up your, 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 your research there at OU, master's and or PhD. What, what'd you work on and why? So with my master's program, I actually worked on uh, data assimilation. Um, at the time, there was a brand new set of radar networks that were relatively expensive to deploy. And the question was, how would that impact the uh, uh, high-resolution weather models? And so I worked with Dr. Kelvin Joggemeyer and uh, Dr. Fan Yu Kong, and um, we, we developed a, a series of experiments to kind of test how a simulation of that fine-scale radar data would help the WERF and also use ARPS uh, post-processing to kind of assess some of the fields and, and all that. And so... Uh, but while I, while I did that work, I actually started a term paper in a climate dynamics class in 2006. And that work actually ended up forming the, the very basis of my dissertation. And it involved uh, looking at the relationship between El Nino and tornadoes in the wintertime. Um, Let me stop you right there because I want to I want to give you a chance to talk about that. But before I do, I want to kind of I don't want to leave your master's work because I want to make sure our weather geeks listeners, we can geek out and use all kinds of really fancy terms on this podcast. I, I think that's why people eavesdrop on this podcast. And thank you all for listening. But there, you did throw out a term that for some may not be familiar. So I want to make sure people understood what you mean by assimilation, which is this idea. And we do data assimilation in meteorology often, which is we have these data sets that may be coming 
coming from observations, radar, satellite, and those observations are being fed into or assimilated into our models like the WARF and ARPS models to try to sort of better, better paint a better picture of the initial or emerging conditions uh, that will be used to predict the future outcome. Is, is that a fair to say? I, did I kind of get that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I want to make sure people understood that. So uh, when you mentioned assimilation, so you were really on the cutting edge uh, of, and shout out to Dr. Kelvin Drogemeyer, who's the current uh, White House science advisor and uh, I guess the outgoing administration, Trump administration. So uh, Ashton's worked some pretty high level people in his career, and I, I know Kelvin as well. But now let's move on and continue your conversation now as you sort of are moving into how your, your doctoral research evolved. Right, so that that term paper actually formed the basis of uh, of my dissertation work in the future, and uh, I don't know about anybody else's dissertation work, but actually there was quite a bit more that went into it than what actually ended up being published in the end. But um, but the first part of that was actually the El Nino tornado relationship in the U.S. just in the winter time, um, and one of the reasons I kind of devised the experiment that way is because the winter time is when the teleconnections show up the strongest between the Equatorial Pacific atmospheric and oceanic conditions and uh, and uh, weather conditions in general in the U.S. So, um, so I picked that up. We actually found interesting and you know significant results. Um, back then, director was uh, Joe Schaefer. He uh, advocated for me, and uh, Pete Lamb was my uh, uh, teacher and supervisor of the class. Ended up being my research advisor for a while there, and. Um, they ended up working with me to uh, get it published and, and get it out there that I worked on this. So publication of a, out of a term paper for a class. And to me, that was as big of an accomplishment as the masters because, um, you know, when I first came to OU, the, the, it was just a, a different level for me in a lot of ways, you know, a, a, and a big transition for me. And that was the, the, the one result that I felt like put me on the map. Like I got a, I got an award for my work. I presented the information at the um, uh, Severe Local Storms Conference. Um, that was huge for me. I got an award actually from OU um, in their uh, science presentation category for grad students. I mean, that was just huge. And so to accomplish all of that was a big deal. And then to find out later that I was the first uh, African-American to get a master's from the program was all all a big deal. It brought me a lot of joy. My family was so proud. Well, yeah, you, you came from sort of weather directly impacting your life as a child to now you having your impact on the field of weather. And I think that's commendable. But I want to sort of stay now with your dissertation now. We, we're in the midst of a La Nina right now, even as we're taping this at the end of 2020. And goodness gracious, uh, let's get out of 2020 as soon as we can. But for our listeners, First of all, explain what La Nina and El Nino are, uh, part of this ENSO cycle. Just give us a 101 on what they are, and then talk about your findings as it relates to ENSO and tornadoes. Well, the El Nino-El Nino phenomenon really relates to uh, trade winds in the Equatorial Pacific and how they impact uh, uh, sea surface temperatures. Uh, but one of the things that researchers have found over the years, really starting back in the 80s, was that these these shifts in the patterns of trade winds and sea surface temperatures actually had downstream impacts on uh, the winds aloft over the Equatorial Pacific and then downstream in the U.S. via 
uh, convection patterns in the in the um, in the Western Pacific. So, um, so I basically took that information and went and, and did several experiments over the span of several years, really, uh, to try to better understand how that impacts uh, the synoptic scale atmospheric conditions that lead to tornado outbreaks. And so, uh, that was the foundation of my dissertation uh, work. Yeah, and um, you know, Dr. Robinson uh, Cook here, I, I wanted to make sure I give you some of his credentials before I continue with the conversation. Uh, he's the uh, severe and fire weather forecaster at the NOAA Storm Prediction Center, SPC is what we often call it in our field. He has a master's and PhD from, in meteorology from University of Oklahoma. Uh, as you heard, also a bachelor's degree from Jackson State University. He participated in the inaugural class of the Early Career Leadership Academy, which was focused on building and sustaining a diverse network of early career leaders in weather, water, and climate science. And he serves on many committees and appointments in our field, and AMS, uh, Board of Women and Minorities, REU Selection Committee, uh, board of Directors for the Bridge of Hope and Relief Foundation, which is a disaster and humanitarian relief organization. And he serves on the OU Steering Committee for the Board of Visitors for the College of Atmospheric and Geographic Sciences. So he's a young man that's really doing uh, a lot of good things on several different fronts. And so I wanted to make sure to highlight some of that. But now let's get back. Okay, so the El Nino is sort of the warm phase of that, where you have this anomaly warm condition in the Central Pacific, and the La Nina is sort of the cold phase in the ENSO cycle, where you have cooler than normal uh, sea surface temperatures or anomalies, if you will. Um, what did you find? I mean, do we get more tornadoes in El Nino, La Nina, certain places? Just give us a sort of a synopsis of what you found. Well, uh, the question about... Uh, whether we get more or less tornadoes depends. <laughs> so, it depends. It's complicated. Yeah. If it was a Facebook, oh, yeah. Facebook uh, relationship, it's complicated. Yep. So, um, so when I was doing my research, uh, one of the things I found was that in general, whenever La Nina conditions occur um, in or, in advance or at around the time of tornado outbreaks, they tend to be at, at farther north latitudes. So what that means is that uh, areas like from Arkansas and Illinois, Indiana, have more of a risk of tornadoes in La Nina than in El Nino. And that, that relationship ex exists in uh, January and extends all the way through April. Um, one of the things I found though too is that there's one El Nino in the 80s, uh, or actually, I'm sorry, in the 90s that uh, 98 that was really active unusually active and one of the things that i found that never really made it to publication was that the nal had a role in uh in in helping with uh, some of the low-level air low-level warm infection that occurred uh way north than what we normally see uh, now that's the north atlantic oscillation for those that are yep. that's another one of these sort of, sort of annular modes or sort of cyclical patterns that we know that exist in our climate system, like the ENSO cycle, the North Atlantic Oscillation. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, but that was also kind of a, a one-off observation too, uh, in a way. And so really uh, one of the other key takeaways from my work is that we need a longer record of observations that includes accurate tornado data uh, and these, these, you know, teleconnections over longer periods of time to really make some of these uh, arguments and also bolstered arguments that we and, and the relationships that we already see. So, um, yeah, that, that and and 
the other aspect of my work is that it was really diagnostic. Um, back in 2010, we actually, with, with uh, my former director, Joe Schaefer, who's, um, who's now passed away now, but he, uh, he and I drafted a statement to the NWS director at the time and several NSEP leadership that talked about uh, my research and my findings and what that could mean for, uh, for tornado activity in the wintertime. And it ended up working out. Like we ended up uh, saying that there, you know, typically in El Nino, there's one to two or maybe three episodes in, in the wintertime. Uh, and they tend to be displaced to the south compared to uh, La Nina. Okay. Turned out in that particular winter, it worked out. We had tornadoes in, in northeast Texas across the Gulf of Mexico, I mean, across the, the Gulf states and into uh, North Carolina. And that was one of the first that I'm aware of, uh, seasonal forecasts. Unfortunately, we kind of discontinued that. Um, I kind of continued to advance the development and the back-end work on that. Um, and so we didn't, you know, continue that effort. And it's, and it's continued in other forms uh, later. But, but um, again, like I say, this was a, a big set of accomplishments for me, uh, not just from the, the actual development and the, and the unearthing of the idea, but also the uh, kind of the notoriety that it gave me. Yeah, yeah, that's an important area. I know there there are uh, others that are looking at this sort of long term or seasonal predictability of tornadoes. I mean, there's certainly been work in the literature. I'm even a former student in our program, Dr. Victor Gensini, who I'm sure you know is doing work from a different perspective on sort of long term or seasonal prediction of tornadoes as well. Um, when we come back from the break, I want to talk a little bit more about what you do at NOAA at SPC. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm talking with Dr. Ashton Robinson-Cook. And we're talking about seasonal tornado forecasting. That's really been the sort of brunt of our discussion here so far you know, we know as meteorologists and as our science scientists that uh, our our systems are connected. I, you know, during my time as a scientist at NASA, we studied the Earth as a system because we. And you've heard uh, the discussion about how something happening way out in the eastern Pacific Ocean with sea surface temperatures and trade winds can, in turn, through these teleconnection patterns that we call them, uh, impact the jet stream here in Georgia or Arkansas or perhaps even in Europe. And that's 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 
kind of how we get at some of these relationships that uh, uh, Ashton has discovered or sort of pioneered and in, in publishing on in his research. Um, but he has a day job. He's a scientist and a forecaster at NOAA's Storm Prediction Center. And let me just give a little 101 before Ashton tells us what he does there. I think many people are familiar with NOAA. Uh, it is the parent agency of the National Weather Service. It's a part of the Department of Commerce. But what I don't think people are familiar with is the fact that in addition to the National Hurricane Center, uh, there are other prediction centers, if you will, uh, within NOAA. Storm Prediction Center being one. There's a Space Weather Prediction Center, an Aviation Weather Center. There's the National Center, National Centers for Environmental Prediction. I, I wanted to make sure that people have that understanding that there are a host of these centers, prediction centers within the National Weather Service, in addition to the local weather forecast offices. Now, having said that, Ashton, give give the listeners a 101, first of all, on what SPC does in general, and then what you do specifically there. So SPC issues uh, convective watches for severe thunderstorms and or for hail and tornadoes and damaging wind gusts. And they also issue convective outlooks from the uh, day one to day eight time frame. And uh, those are updated several times daily, especially the day one convective outlook. Um, SPC also does fire weather uh, outlooks as well in the one, one to eight day time frames. And uh, there are several products that are actually issued. There's a day one uh, product that covers just the first day, um, a day two product that covers the second day, and then day three through eight that goes out and kind of gives an overview of what's going to happen. Um, in the course of a week, um, we got. How do you? I want to. I want to pause there because you've piqued my interest in something. So you're issuing these day one through day seven, eight outlooks for fire. As a meteorologist, give our listeners a a peek into your analysis. What are you looking at? What models? What data are you looking at to sort of to come to these sort of outlook conclusions that you end up issue, issuing? Just walk us through your your sort of process. Sure. Well, the the closer into a particular event or day that we're forecasting, the better and the more higher resolution the models are, and the wind forecast in in fire weather or everything, um, we have to have accurate wind forecast, not just on a global scale, but also um, in as fine a scale as possible, and that includes terrain forcing because terrain can be really important in in forcing certain wind events. Uh, the biggest and most obvious example is in Southern California, whenever there's a, a certain synoptic pattern that, that sets up where there's high pressure in the Great Basin, that air is forced over the mountains and, in it, and as, it for, as it's forced over the mountains, it dries out and warms up. And sometimes those winds can be really gusty because they're, they're affected by the local terrain. So, um, and of course there's vegetation out there um, as well. And there's things for, there's, there's, uh, you know, plants, trees, weeds that that can support fires, and sometimes when they grow in these very windy conditions, they can spread rapidly uh, into areas where there's really expensive uh, properties, homes, things like that. So, um, so I rely a lot on the on the high scale, on the uh, uh, very fine scale models uh, for the day one and day two forecasts to try to get those wind forecasts right. Um, this year, they've been really important. Uh, because uh, we've had some really big, uh, high-impact fires in Oregon, uh, I worked some of those days, and they were—they were—it uh, was fact, practically incredible to see a large part of the state of Oregon on fire. But, but I relied on the rap, the rapid um, 
uh, I'm sorry, the name escapes me right now. The, the, the rap. The rap model, sure. Yeah, the rap model. Also, the uh, the her. Uh, there's the wharf model that's, that's being run, well, the research and forecast model is being run on in several areas out in the West. There's regional runs that we look at to try to get a handle on on wind speeds and where they may be, you know, stronger than maybe some of the global models will suggest. But also look at the the, the key operational models too, it's the NAM, uh, NAM and the, the GFS and the Euro. Um, so you can use uh, multiple models. That's one oh, yeah. people understand because, you know, a lot of people that, you know, sort of follow weather and are enthusiastic about weather, um, they may have this idea that, oh, the European model is the best model. So that's the one we should use for everything. But in fact, we know as professionals in this field that you use models, all types of models, and take the, take the best and worst and sort of discard the worst of each of them and put together the best forecast that you can. Is that is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And each of the models have their own set of biases, too. Uh, yeah. Talk so, about that. Well, well, some of the models can be too moist in the boundary layer and... That's paramount to fire weather forecasting too. If you have a model that that consistently over predicts RH, then you won't have the magnitude of the fire weather threat in a particular area correct. So, um, you know, those those biases, we all kind of have to be sensitive to those as we make our forecasts. And a lot of times, what we do is we take a, either take a blend or we kind of lean toward one model or another, um, or or compare it to another, and just kind of make. Um, uh, broad statements about what the fire weather risk will be. And then we also use, you know, probabilities and, and categorical areas to highlight areas where we think the best shot of a, of a particular event occurring um, will exist. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. Ashton's really geeking out with us here. I love this. You <laughs> heard him talk about PBL and RH and so forth. I mean, I, I, again, I know we have a, a range of listeners here, so I like to break some of these things down. So the, uh, the planetary boundary layer, the PBL that you heard him mention, is typically that first kilometer or so above the ground. So if you go up uh, in a weather balloon or on a balloon, if you will, from the surface up to about the first kilometer, and it can vary depending on what time of day it is and where you are latitudinally. Um, it's really the part of the atmosphere that still can somewhat feel the influence of the surface. That's what we talk about when we talk about boundary layer meteorology. And you heard him mention RH, which is relative humidity. And so that's really an indication of moisture. Although, as I teach in my classes at the University of Georgia, relative humidity is not really the best measure of humidity in the sense that it's a relative measure that somewhat depends on the temperature as well. There, there are measure, things like mixing ratio and specific humidity that give you actual amount of water vapor, but relative humidity is used quite a bit in sort of more operational ap applied fashion. So um, it sounds like you really focus on that, uh, the moisture in the boundary layer is one of the forecast um, sort of pieces of the forecast pie that you look at. Absolutely. I mean, there's been times when we've had areas that we thought might be really active for far weather, but then it ended up raining. Uh, or we get a downburst somewhere that kind of raises the RH. But that's where it gets really interesting. Um, because when we get these environments where there's downbursts that kind of disrupt the local environment, yeah, they may temporarily raise the RH, but they also cause the winds to become erratic, which can affect the fire weather and the firefighting efforts. So we try to, when we see thunderstorms in a forecast, we try to convey that information. We actually have categories to help us delineate the areas where there might be a risk of that type of activity happening. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available 
on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking to a a young man that I've followed his career for some time, uh, Dr. Ashton Robinson. Cook, I'm, I'm sorry, I had to let, bend down here to grab the rest of my notes. Shout out, by the way, to the excellent, excellent Weather Geeks producers, Sarah Dillingham and, and, and Heather Zahn, and also to Josh Vexter, who, and, and all the people like Rodney Higgins and others that make this happen. Occasionally, I do this, Ashton, in the podcast, because I think people often hear my voice in the guests, but they do not realize the amount of support that we have. And I think you've even experienced that as we were leading up to the show and all of the interactions you have with our, our producers and our team. So I, I wanted to just take that moment to give a big shout out. Now, let's, let's geek out some more. Let's, this is weather geeks. Let's geek out. Um, like we often discuss with seasonal forecasts, it only takes one event to make a particular year memorable. Uh, how can scientists best address that in our public messaging? I mean, you deal with forecasting. Uh, and one of the things that I'm seeing in our field of weather and meteorology is sometimes the consumption of our the information that we put out is not just dependent upon the best and fancy model or satellite data or radar, but just how we message and how people consume the messaging. That's why we're seeing uh, advances in social sciences research. And I know there are people at SPC uh, like uh, Kim Colocal McLean uh, and Cassandra Shivers Williams and others that are thinking about this. What is your perspective as someone who issues forecasts on how we best improve our messaging? Well, um, as a forecaster, I think the one thing I try to focus on is just explaining the risk as clearly as possible. And as forecasters, we're really sensitive to these one-off events that just so happens to hit a a populated area. Um, And that's one of the biggest, I think, challenges in in forecasting is that, you know, there may be a hundred events that occur where most of the impacts are relatively minor. Uh, and, we, and we have those those risk areas drawn and the products kind of describe that. But then we have that one one off event that actually hits something. And, um, you know, the perception can kind of be, you know, well, wait a minute. Did you guys why, why did you guys only have marginal? Why did you not guys not have slight or, you know, or, you know, in fire weather, why did you have elevated instead of, you know, critical or extreme? <laughs> and it's just one of those things where it's just um, we a lot of our focus is on the meteorology and getting the meteorology right. And that's challenging enough. And then when you consider some of the other impacts, it can, there can just be real challenges and there's no real easy answers in, in uh, communicating that risk in such a way that people can, can really grasp that 
you know, maybe one in 10 times you're in a, in an area where there's going to be some severe weather in the area, but you may not have any impacts, but then there's also that one chance that you could have a major impact. So, uh, so we try to just convey it as best as we can. That's why we have probabilities. That's why we have discussions where we describe some of these things um, when they come up. And the cool and unique thing about forecasting too, is that um, every weather scenario is different. And there's no one scenario that just repeats itself all the time. There's always these nuances in the atmosphere that could either short circuit a, a big severe weather outbreak by chance or short circuit a tornado, tornado genesis in an individual supercell or it can enhance that process. And sometimes those, those factors aren't really apparent until the event's unfolding. Right. And so to forecast that can be really, really challenging. Yeah, no, I think people, you know, we often take uh, our, our our criticisms in this field as being prognosticators and getting things wrong. But that that's a myth. I mean, I think if you look at weather forecasting in general, uh, it's quite good. In fact, I would I would put weather forecasting and the types of things you do right up there with people who are forecasting stock market trends and outcomes of sports and so forth. Um, I think people just in their moment may have a bad experience or forecast and they make these sweeping generalizations. But if they look closely at the numbers, and I'm, I'm sure you all have verification statistics there, uh, it would show that you're doing pretty good, particularly in the in the short term timeframes, one to, one to three days and so forth. So all the time. I wanna, and I, I'll give you a little bit of an insight in the SBC. And I see it amongst our forecasters. And I love it because to me, it, it it's kind of it kind of exudes the passion that our forecasters have is that we look at these different events and we'll see like, you know, different metrics for verification. And we kind of, kind of, but sometimes, cause we're like, you know, that, that from an impact, from a number standpoint, this, this was a, uh, maybe a level four risk or a moderate, but from an impact standpoint, this was only a level one because the, the impacts weren't, weren't there. And so we have these conversations all the time in ops about, you know, uh, issuing products. And what's interesting is that sometimes these conversations come up in a time-sensitive environment where we don't have a lot of time to pontificate every single downstream effect of what we issue. We just have to go with the best meteorological forecast at the same time. And so to me, it's just, that's probably one of the most fascinating aspects of the job that I've, you know, I've kind of picked up on the last five years is, is seeing that process in real time and at times actually being the point guy and having to make the decision, right. you know, discussing it with, with, you know, internal forecasters, discussing it with, you know, forecasters out in the field, collaborating and, and seeing what their thoughts are. All of that's a fascinating process to me. Yeah, I think that's right. And I appreciate you giving our listeners an insight into it. And that's why we really love having people like you on the show. I want to circle back to seasonal forecasting to get your forecast of where seasonal forecasting of tornadoes is going. What's on the horizon? Well, I think it's only going to continue to advance. Um, hopefully in a later interview, I can kind of tell you a few more details about that. I know there's some things out there that uh, we'll, we'll talk about those in a different <laughs> time. But, I mean, I, I think that the literature and there are some sort of cutting edge things that we, I think you and others out there are, are thinking about, right? Yeah, and there's some really cool applications out there that are, that are coming up and coming on the horizon too. So, yeah. any, any thoughts of yours as we sort of wind this talk down about the, the impacts of climate change and and tornado activity in general, frequency or intensity? Do you sort of steer into that, or is that not really your area of interest? You know, where I 
I kind of give my expert opinion without actually having done a whole lot of research into this, but just kind of giving an overview of what kind of relating my work to the climate change problem is that there's probably some 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 in some indication of some shift in in, in the climate that's going to impact tornadoes moving forward, but uh, it's just so difficult because you know every synoptic system is different, and there's a lot of factors that go into tornado development that are on scales that are not anywhere remotely related to climate. And so, yeah. um, I think as we move forward, I think the, the there needs to be a caution and a care in how you actually approach the research problem uh, to make sure that the results that we get are really robust. And I try, I've tried to do that at every turn with my work. Um, because I know there's been challenges, you know, the, the record as you go back in time is a whole lot uh, more difficult to uh, draw meaningful conclusions from. Um, I've noticed in other papers more recently that that it seems like the, the, the 70s to 2000s might be more reliable record than the 50s and 60s. And I kind of agree with that. But but also it's, you know, 40 or 50 years of data enough to make a meaningful conclusion. So you know, as the climate continues to change, I suspect we'll probably have these papers that come out, you know, 20, 20, 30 years from now and say, you know, hey, these are the results back then, but they may have changed because the climate has changed so much. So Yeah, and and that's something that we we sort of concluded in this report that we published for the National Academy of Sciences on attribution. Can we identify extreme climate change in today's extreme weather events. And for some things, we actually had a pretty good signal. But for tornadic storms, it was actually not as much of a signal for some of the very reasons that you mentioned. Now, I know that people like Harold Brooks and Victor Gensini and others have published some recent papers in the scientific literature. So as you point out, we're learning more and the data records are getting longer. And so I think we'll start to get better fidelity on the climate change, severe storm, tornado linkages. But for now, the message that I will put out there is that uh, beware, we, climate is changing. Humans are very much contributing to it. It is impacting a lot of our extreme weather events. But beware of those that say we're having more tornadoes because of climate change or beware of those that say we're having less tornadoes because of climate change. I think it's really an area where we're still emerging our knowledge. Uh, last question for you. Where can listeners find out more about you or your work? Are you in social media anywhere? Do you have any websites at SPC and so forth? Oh, yeah. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, what's, your, what's your Twitter? My Twitter is uh, ARCook75. ARCook75, because when, when this episode airs, we'll want to start tweeting you and tagging you on the weather uh, from the Weather Geeks uh, site as well. So I want to make sure. This has really been amazing, Ashton. Uh, I, I know and I know there's a lot of work and discussion to get you on this podcast, and I'm glad we were able to make it through. Uh, I, I thought it would be a great, great interview, and it was, and I really appreciate you coming on. Before we get out of here, though, it's time for the Geek of the Week. We, we like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weedy at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Billy Millington. If you know Billy, you know he's always, and always is in capital letters, talking about the weather. He gives forecasts to his friends on their travels to local farms so they know the perfect time to plant crops and to other weather geeks so they can get excited about it. Hey, Billy, we love your positivity. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Ashton, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's been an honor. Thank you. Yes. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll talk to you next time. 
look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.